This is a HeadGum Podcast. Andrew. Craig. It's time to holiday shop. Oh, no, again. Don't <laughs> panic, though. There's oh, simply well, late, no cause did. to panic. Oh, no. Because Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list, whether you're shopping for mom or dad or teenagers or in-laws or readers or gamers or NPCs or protagonists, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what you want and what they want, which is even more important. <laughs> uh, Andrew, I'm just look. I'm just browsing. You know, we're we're talking about a book about gaming today, so mm-hmm. I looked up games. I found a cool horse racing game a horse racing game it's like wood carved you play it with dice and and cards but then you move your cool little horse guys across Ooh. the the track and it teaches you how to play the ponies too it does i love it double double whammy um there is something called madox interactive treasure hunt <laughs> which is kind of like a escape room in your own house i guess you mm-hmm. get like clues but it does say that you could like there are people you can text for hints. This just sounds great. I love it. Okay. And then if you don't want a game thing, you just want a book thing. I found a classic literature cat tote that has like the great Catsby or Pride and Perjudice or Romeo and Juliet on it. Just, that's, you know, that's funny. Pretty good stuff. Yeah. When you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. Uh, they look for products that are high quality, unique, and often made in the United States. They have something for everyone, not the same lackluster gifts you could find just anywhere. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give $1 back to a nonprofit partner of your choice. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com overdue. That's uncommongoods.com slash overdue for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew, and I can't podcast right now. I'm gaming. Oh no! Uh oh. Yeah, I'm playing games. I'm gonna... I mean, every every week I'm playing games while we podcast. So if I ever seem distracted or if I'm like upset about a book or something, it's probably just because I'm losing at my video game. Oh my god! Who is this character? <laughs> I need to unplug his console right away. I have a, a bunch of. I have a. My closet is full of T-shirts that say "Don't bother me. I'm gaming." <laughs> Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. It would not surprise me if you had ever received those shirts as a gift, <laughs> and not that you would wear them. No, no, I've never, I've, I've never received those kinds of shirts as a, as a gift. But okay, that's I good. Wouldn't I? Wouldn't refuse one. I well, mean, you gotta, you gotta work out in something. <laughs> and I would definitely do it in my "Don't wake me until I've had my gaming" T-shirt or whatever it is. <laughs> it's like, don't talk to me until I've had my gaming. I want all of these t-shirts. I want a quilt made out of these t-shirts. <laughs> what intro did you have? Because you looked like you had one planned and then I just did one. Did Here's you have my one? intro. Okay, I'll cool. give it let's, to you let's real do, quick. Let's do intro Craig's version to make but, another Taylor Swift joke two weeks in a row. <laughs> b- 
That was as far as I got. The Zelda item noise. Yeah, it was the closest thing I could cut, or or I could. Okay, that's the Final Fantasy noise when you beat the monsters. That's me getting a coin. That's you getting. Did you know that because of the noise or because I kind of punched the air when I said I, it? Well, I mean, I think I, I was pretty sure, in the, but I was glad that you said that was you getting a coin like in Mario. So why or it t- could be it could be also the noise of you turning on your original Nintendo Game Boy. What is that? It's just you, Craig does every boot up noise for every console release between 1985 and 2004. Those are the only. I don't think I could do like. Wait, is that a window? That sounds like the Windows 98 startup no, sound. Well, no, but the the original PlayStation one had that kind of like. Oh yeah, it did okay. Mm. Mm. But the only ones I know are the GameCube and the PlayStation one. I guess I could do Sega, Sega. like that. Yeah. My, so I think my it's just to talk about. It. I think my intro was like a little funnier, but this one I've enjoyed more. Like I think the listeners will enjoy my intro more, but I've enjoyed yours more. I really and like that's where review, I am. On them. I like leaving reviews for a podcast <laughs> inside of it while you record it. That's good. I like. That. I just thought people might like a, a view into our process. Oh, I'll be up front. My intro stopped at the Zelda noise, and uh-huh. then I realized I needed more material. Well, because you, you just do that to me, and then we both, and then our brains are just like, well, we got we to gotta keep going from that, so yes. what yeah, now? It's very different when I say, here's my thing, and then you don't do any part of it. You just go, uh-huh. huh, mm-hmm. intro. This is a book <laughs> podcast where one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it, and it will become clear instantly why we're talking about gaming, which we actually mm-hmm. do on this podcast a decent amount because, Andrew, we are both gamers. We're both hardcore gamers. Died um, in the wool. Yeah. I play upwards of six video games a year, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> but some of them you play a bunch is the yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can talk about that a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But, no, I read Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by uh, Gabriel Zevin this week. It is... A book I have been meaning to read. It was a like book of the year last year on a number of websites on the yeah, internet. Yeah, uh, I have a bunch of these. Amazon okay. designated it as the best book of 2022. It was a New York Times bestseller. It was a Barnes & Noble book club pick. It was included on several best books of the year lists, and it was widely praised in reviews like all over the place. Yeah. Because, partly because it was so... like. The emotions of it were so accessible, despite it being about video games, yeah, which I doesn't a, always. I, I feel I feel like Ready Player One is going to come up multiple times as we talk about this. So I'm just like I'm flagging that now as a sure. game that, as a book that was emotionally about nothing and essentially a long list of uh, references to existing IP. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, then the last, the last. I just want to. I just. <clears throat> This was a Jimmy Fallon book club pick. Thing one about this, I didn't know that Jimmy Fallon had a book club. Yeah. And thing two, that honest to God sounds like a slam to me (laughs) to be on a Jimmy Fallon book club. Like, it sounds like a joke that you would make about a... Like a like if you were riffing on like the Oprah book club or something, you'd say, "Oh yeah, this is a Jimmy Fallon book club." It sounds like a Simpsons joke from the aughts. (laughs) 
<laughs> where they would predict that he would get one of the late shows mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. he would start an Oprah book club. And mm-hmm. you'd, you'd laugh because it would mm-hmm. sound funny to you. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, no, so it, <laughs> you got this one right, though, Jimmy. Good job. <laughs> you did. Uh, this is also, it was a book that uh, my wife read in a book club and said, you should read it. I think you would like it. Because uh, it's about video games. Yeah, and and emotions. She knows I like both of those things. Yeah. I don't. I don't like all the emotions equally, if we're being honest. But <laughs> you don't. Yeah, have no, to. you 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 do experience them. Yeah, and I I like <laughs> the emotions. I like them generally, and I do gravitate towards art that is like trying to make me feel them, like mm-hmm. like overtly i'm not Mm -hmm. immune to and i'm often a sucker for it um and i think that actually even reflects some of my taste in gaming yeah that's interesting because we were we were talking about this in the overdue discord patreon.com slash overdue pod if you want to join us in this big old melting pot of opinions and and, and whatever (laughs) talking about the kind we have a video game channel and we're talking about the kinds of things we play and and i was talking a bit about how I just don't vibe that much with like mechanically simple games that are metaphors for depression or whatever. Like it's just, it's, I gravitate toward something that is like a little twitchier and uh, like, I'd like a lot of platform stuff, but 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 you're not a cothead. You're not out here. No, I'm not a cothead. I don't, I don't like, I can't do multiplayer online gaming because I hate losing and I'm never going to have enough time or patience to get good at, any of any of them so yeah. i have zero patience for any of them sure but um but you know when a, when a game like celeste or something comes along and it's like twitchy and platformy but also it's a, about depression <laughs> like that I, that i can get behind <laughs> sure but just like the games where you're some like waifish whatever and you walk to the right and art happens like those i don't really care that much sure for. i um, haven't played one of those in a long time i have more patience for them um, I think also like I can get really invested in what art games, this is a bad loaded term, but whatever are like trying to do. Mm-hmm. And that makes me extra interested in them. Um, like I just get in the head of like, well, what were, what were you trying to do as a designer? And what were you trying to like do with the medium of interactive like experiences and then i find myself like way down the rabbit hole on a game that's like it's mostly walking around and talking to people uh-huh. but it's like haven't seen a game be about this before like it's mm-hmm. that kind of stuff did you play night in the woods you might like night in the woods. i never did and i i think i i kind of bounced I off it a little I bit but i think own you it, like it on steam okay. i own it <laughs> i have i have paid for a license to download the code of it mm-hmm. and play mm-hmm. it myself okay. all right that's a there's ta- they're taking a whole bunch of stuff off like PlayStation stores. It's just bumming everybody out. Physical yeah. media is dead. Anyway, uh, so Gabrielle Zevin, <laughs> she was born in 1977. She's an American author. Um, she was like born in New York and lives in L.A. And like yeah. biographically, that's basically the like the gist of what you need to know about. Like she she talks a little bit about her background and like interviews about the book. Uh, specifically coming up in the, quote, Oregon Trail generation. I also saw this referred to as a pocket generation between Gen X and Millennial. I buy that. Um, That's a big part of what makes the book work. But people, much in the same way that, like, 
Gen Z coming up is like the first to have never experienced a world without the internet. Like this is that generation that has never experienced a world without video games. And she likes to think about how that kind of influences people's outlook. Uh, so I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more. Yep. Uh, her first novel was called, called Margaret town, all one word published in 2005. Uh, there were a couple novels for young readers. She wrote called elsewhere and memoirs of a teenage amnesiac. Those came out in 2005, 2007, uh, she wrote The Hole We're In in 2010. Uh, she wrote the Birthright series between this three books between 2011 and 2013. The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery in 2014. That was, a, that was a breakout for her, I think. Yeah, like the Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow book cover I saw thing. credited her as the author of The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery, which made me think that, oh, it must have broken out more than young jane young which came out in 2017 yes um it's my understanding that like margaret town uh like was maybe well reviewed but didn't sell any cop like did not sell mm -hmm. many copies and then elsewhere and her exclusively other to people named margaret <laughs> <laughs> and elsewhere sold a bunch and so she like really went down the ya trail for a while there and then i think the that. Died of dysentery. Well, that's a whole part of the <laughs> on the on the this. on the YA trail. Um, that what's that Saint something? What's his name? What, what is that book something. called? What her other book? Oh, the storied life of AJ Fickery. There's no saint in there. Yeah, the um, <laughs> that's why I was confused. That was made into a, a film, I believe. Um, yeah, she's written a few screenplays, including several that are like adapting her work. Like right now, she's working on a. Screenplay for a Paramount Plus adaptation of Tomorrow and Tomorrow yep. Tomorrow. Yep. Um, they bought the rights more than a year before the book's publication. So just like try and get yep. in on that like video. There's a big book. bidding war for this book too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, um, I'm not sure if if uh, the one you mentioned is one of the screenplays that she wrote of her yes. own work. Yeah. But yeah, she's she's done them of her own work. Her she, her partner sometimes directs these. Yeah. Adaptations. So, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. She said that this book came out of a period of like just being stuck. She grew up playing games her whole life. Her parents worked for IBM. Um, and she often talks about like being a lonely kid. And when you could play with a computer, you weren't real. You were playing by yourself, but not really. Like mm -hmm. there was something else that you were interacting with. Mm -hmm. uh, and she could she was talking oh she went she said she went to go play some old adventure game and like couldn't find it and it didn't exist or like was not playable and oh, it's like when our friend david asked us to find that <laughs> weird pc game that no one else on the internet had ever talked no. about before but oh he God. remembered it mm -hmm. uh police force z or whatever it was called <laughs> i don't know um and she's like i found that like it made me sad and i felt a, a pang of like longing and loss and I jotted down in my notebook, story of two game designers, the games they make are their lives. And she just kind of was like, oh, there's this like minor grief I'm experiencing about this game that's gone. I can tie that to other feelings people are going to have throughout their lives. The other thing she talks about coming into this book, um, as I presume you're trying to find the name of that game. <laughs> I was. I couldn't. Discord search isn't, isn't helping me because it's not police force anything. And I searched computer game, didn't find anything. I'll keep um, looking. Okay. I just know people are, people are going to ask. About I know, it. I know. We found the music for it. That's what we were looking mm -hmm, for. Mm -hmm. um, she said that before she wrote this book, um, she had kind of stayed away from her 
heritage. She said in an LA Times interview, before I wrote this book, I'd never made anyone half Jewish and half Korean like I am and like Sam, one of the characters in the book is. Part of that is because at this point in my life, I understand more about what that is um, and how to write about it. And so this book has a lot of um, characters who are experiencing uh, racism, you know, anti-Asian racism specifically, or one character, Marx, is um, of Korean and Japanese descent and kind of fits nowhere. And she just is channeling a lot of her own experience into this book. Uh, and wherever she talks about it, she's like, yeah, I didn't, I was really avoiding that for a very, very long time. Uh, <laughs> What's the book? What's the game called? <laughs> Traffic Department 2192. Yes! <laughs> it looks like garbage. Police Force is so much cooler as a name for a 90s PC game, and they called it Traffic Department 2192. Listen. DMV Simulator. What? I've never made a video game, and I know it's very hard to do so. That game doesn't look good. <laughs> I Like... It just doesn't look good. I mean, I think every kid, though, <clears throat> especially if you were coming up in, like without a lot of money or or whatever, like oh yeah, you had you had games that you were bought, and it was one of fifteen games that you owned, and oh, so yeah. you like played and made yourself like that game because it was one of the games that you had. I mean, that for me. Quest 64 is one of those. Oh, sure. A deeply bad game that was like the only RPG on the Nintendo 64. I learned how to make a boot disc for my bad PC so that I could play Star Wars Rebel Assault. Mm -hmm. That game is awful. Mm -hmm. It's very bad. The Super but Nintendo I... version of Ah Real Monsters. Also not oh, very good. No. <laughs> Imagine like making it so your computer can do nothing else but play a bad game. Mm -hmm. I was willing to do that. We don't have enough memory for Windows 3.1. <laughs> we need it all for this bad game that we made. Um, but yeah, this book then just becomes a sensation. I think you're right, Andrew. Like it's a lot of people surprised that they can connect with a book about gamers. Yeah. I mean, if, and if Jimmy likes it, you know. Well, it's I mean, that was ship. probably a rocket sealed, ship to the top of the charts. Probably what sealed the, the, the deal. Jimmy Fallon book club. <laughs> um, but as I'll talk about over the course of the episode, I think there are some like story to borrow a reference to an Emily Dickinson poem from within the book. Like there are grooves that she's writing in that I think are about like they're similar to other stories about either artists or creatives in some field. Um, and the types of, you know, problems they have with each other and successes they have with each other that she just found a, a very unique set of circumstances to put those story beats into, mm -hmm. or at least unique relative to, you know, other popular fiction. Like, they're, mm -hmm. I, I don't know, maybe we, after the break we can talk about other books that have video games in them. I know you want to talk about Ready Player One. So I mean, I don't want to. Well, <laughs> I, we already I, made I, you I do it. Like, I feel like it will be irrelevant, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's take a break, and then we will talk about this book. All right. Craig. Andrew. We talked about it being gift-buying season, right? We did. Okay, that, set, that sets me up. 
Okay. Because I want to talk about the perfect present. Craig. Oh. You know, it doesn't have always have to be difficult to find. A digital picture frame from Aura Frames is thoughtful, meaningful, and perfect for pretty much everyone. They even come in a premium gift box, so shove that wrapping paper back in the closet. Put it back in there. It's they, also, they also have they have like a a set as a as a tech person, I appreciate that they have like the regular packaging that the box comes in, and then also the like if you want to set this up for someone who's gonna have no idea what to do with it. Love it. Here, like, follow these instructions, <laughs> remove this bit of packaging, set it up, and then put it back in the box. <laughs> I do like that a lot, actually. Yeah, me too. Um, so, yeah, I'm my uh, my my kids' uh, grandparents, great grandparents live a little far away. Uh, I got one of them an aura frame one of uh, a couple of years ago, honestly, like before they were even giving us money to talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, every every time I upload a new picture to this frame, because that's what you do. There's an app. You take pictures off your camera roll. You upload them, and then they display on the screen. It looks great. Um, I hear about it when I when I upload a new picture, even though it's like cycling through seventy something pictures at this point. Like when when there's a new one in there, they notice, and I hear about <laughs> it. <laughs> Just lovingly sitting and looking at the R frame. Honestly, I my I'm le- I'm given to believe that this happens a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you pick one of their frames, you set it up in minutes, and you start sharing your favorite photos and videos using the free Aura app. It comes with unlimited storage and it's super secure. This year, give the perfect holiday gift. Visit AuraFrames.com today and get thirty dollars off their best-selling frames with the code Overdue. These frames sell out quickly, so get yours before they're gone. That's A U R A Frames.com with the promo code Overdue. Terms and conditions apply. Andrew, I have another gift to give you today. Ooh. I have the perfect bookish podcast recommendation for you and our listeners. I can't wait to unwrap this. Yeah, break it open. It's called Missing Pages. It's hosted by renowned literary critic and publishing insider Beth Ann Patrick, and it's back for a brand new season. Produced by the award-winning firm The Podglomerate, Missing Pages features some of the biggest names in the book world today, like New York Times bestselling author Jody Pico, Publishers Weekly's Jim Milliot, and Slate columnist Laura Miller. Each episode, these lit heroes sit down with Beth Ann to set the record straight on the industry's pressing topics, including book bans in America and the various scammers impacting writing communities across the world. Don't know where to start? I'd highly recommend listening to the first episode of the season, The Colleen Hoover Story. It's a compelling look at Hoover's rise to stardom and explores the central question, is her career a sign of a changing literary landscape where book publishers are losing their power as the industry gatekeepers? As The Washington Post and The Guardian said, Missing Pages is a must-listen, and I couldn't agree more. So go ahead, listen to Missing Pages wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Andrew. All right. I read the book. You sure did. I mean, I assume. Yeah, I did do it. We've this never, time. we've never like checked. No, we've we always, never we always checked. just trust that the other one has done the thing that they've said that they did, and no one has caught us doing otherwise. Nope. Mm-hmm. So let's continue and keep a perfect record. Uh, I dug this book. Let me say up top, I thought it was a, f- a fun time. I thought it was a interesting book 
about a subject that I have a lot of familiarity with as a fan, as a gamer, a fan mm-hmm. of games and, mm-hmm. and of the people who make them. Now, are you a gamer like G-A-M-E-R or are you a gamer like G-4-M-3-R? <laughs> I am the former. Okay. Let me. One of the reasons I needed to say I liked this book and had a, a fun read with it and, and think it was interesting and I'm probably be thinking about it for a while. Uh, Sometimes... Anytime the designers are talking about, um, okay, you're you're designing a game, okay, right? I'm there. Yes, you are accounting for the person who will pick up the controller and will manipulate the character inside the game. Yes, what would you call that person? The player. So would I, and the book calls them the gamer, and I lose my mind a little every Re- time ready gamer one it just doesn't <laughs> i'm i don't know why she went with that instead of with player i think the reason that bothers me is partly because i chose like a decade ago because because of gamergate I, if not other things well yeah. i mean like way before gamergate even like i when i was getting started you know writing and having kind of a public facing persona sure, yes. profile like you know one one of those things one of those things that i wrote in my twitter bio where you write you know like dad christian uh, football fan whatever yeah, whatever sure. i put gamer in there for a while yes and then i self-consciously chose to stop associating myself with that term because i did not want to be associated with what most people think of when they think of gamers, which yeah. for those of you who are lucky enough not to know is mostly like weird misogynists who swear at their moms while they're playing Call of Duty, which yeah. is a stereotype and is actually one that Zevin like thinks is outdated. Very much so. Yeah. Insofar as she she thinks, you know, you, you play Wordle, you're playing a game. If you're on Instagram and you're like dealing with the gamified algorithms of that, like you're playing, it's a dull, boring game with no goals, but you're still playing a game. Yep. Like she talked about this. In She's Washington, very smart about or, that. Uh, it was a Wired interview, I think, yep. where she yep. talked about this. Um, But yeah, the reason, like, I still would not call myself a gamer because people don't think of moms playing Wordle when they think of gamers. Nope, nope, nope. And, and the book... So she smartly structures the book in that Oregon Trail generation zone, which I think has served her very well talking about the book, and it served her very well structuring the book because it does a few. It, it's I'm I'm sure I have mentioned it on one of the 600 episodes of this podcast we've done. Mm-hmm. It's the thing where like you can't do the movie big if the internet exists because they need to wait <laughs> for the Bureau of Information to tell them where the Zoltar machines are. Well, and that big piano wouldn't have existed because it would have been like a MIDI thing. <laughs> also true. Mm-hmm. But the whole reason he's stuck as a boy is be- uh, as a man is because they're waiting for some like secretary to get back to them and yes. they can't mm-hmm. google anything. Mm-hmm. So this is like the the kids know what games are. They've grown up with them and when they become uh when they're college age and they decide to make their like first commercial game, uh they're doing it in the mid 90s when it's like John Carmack, Romero, like these kind of like guys who end up changing what games are commercial gaming is and they are like doing it in like small teams who are led by personalities 
mm-hmm. in a way that like studios aren't these days um, yeah. and haven't been and, for a long time. Yeah, and, and it's it's an era of games. So these are the people who did like Doom and yep. Quake and like yep. a, a bunch of big, you know, early formative uh, first person shooter games. Zevin also and, checks King's Quest, which is uh, what yeah, is mm-hmm. her name. The keep going, I'll, I'll find her name. Yeah, sure. Um, but uh, it yeah, it's it's the, all these personalities. Like most of them. They did their best work when they were on a little tiny small team, and as soon as they were running a company, they like flamed out spectacularly in in one way or another. Um, <laughs> Whether that's just like releasing a bad game that didn't do as well critically or commercially, or yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, Roberta Williams is the person I was, I was looking go. for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so when our main characters Sadie and Sam are working on a game and like dropping out of college to make it and and sell it, it feels very uh social network but everyone's less evil sort of vibe uh-huh. um the film the social network not just social networks in general uh, <laughs> and uh yeah it feels like that is possible it's this like you know 15 or 20 years later there's this boom of like quote unquote indie games where you get these small studios like breaking through again but these were like this is what it was if you weren't Nintendo or Sony it was these guys on you know people making games on PCs and whatever yeah, so it feels she, very possible she, yeah and she talks about that in in that wired interview where like you know the best the best time to be Yes. Uh, uh-huh. What was she say? It's like a little bit of uh, internet she said. Yeah. yeah, we see these things come in cycles and I think uh, Obviously, App Store was another thing that democratized games a bit, or even the Nintendo Store opening up to smaller developers. But I think the ability to make a game that hit a lot of people with a relatively small team, I think, was maybe easier to imagine in the mid-90s. Yes. Yeah. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, how the PC had become standardized in the decade before that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, we have. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it was a it was a it was a platform you could just kind of do whatever with and run whatever on without yep. needing to get the official Nintendo seal of approval or or own anybody's like dev kit stuff. Like it was just not gated to the extent that other stuff was gated, except everybody who played your game had to like own a PC, which was sort of non not always a trivial like cost for a lot of yeah, people. For sure. Yeah. So like the the two characters, their careers launched in the mid nineties. And then the book ends somewhere in the 2010s, I think, maybe mm-hmm. 2009, mm-hmm. like before it gets away with not really describing social media. It talks it's interesting, about forums. Yeah, interesting that it chooses to end like 30 seconds before Gamergate It talks about forums. <laughs> it mentions Kotaku. It mentions TED Talks, but it basically gets away from anything related even even mentioning like i don't even think farmville is mentioned i don't Mm -hmm. think it is i could be wrong Mm -hmm. um so and and like she mentions phones late in the game but it's not like iphones for for a book that is like pretty comfortable specifically name dropping real things and i think it really would have hurt the book if she was like i'm never gonna mention a real game ever it's all gonna be fictional like these these made up ga- and i think that would actually would make it a little less accessible to people who yeah. didn't play games like if, if you were naming this thing that was supposed to be a stand-in for Correct. doom but you called it like death and everybody who played <laughs> games like knew yes what it was exactly yeah. exactly mm-hmm. the the closest thing is there is a character named dove who is a big jerk he sucks 
He is a professor at MIT. We meet him through Sadie, um, who is one of his students. And then they start a relationship. You oh know, boy. He's, and he's got oh a boy. wife back and in Israel. Wait, and you know. this guy sucks. Yeah. You, like, wait, this guy, this this like programming <laughs> professor at MIT who starts a relationship with one of his students behind his wife's back sucks. Whoa, whoa. Um, he is this like genius developer who had a breakthrough hit called Dead Sea. It's this you know zombie game the that is very emotional, and so it's got this kind of artistic story quality, but also it, like, he pushed the graphical abilities of reflections and blood, so, like, (laughs) he's, and he's this, like, he's the closest you get to, like, a fully fabricated, like, rock star developer along the lines of the Doom guy, you know, people like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once... That's always an interesting thing about games, it's like, yeah, this is super innovative in terms of storytelling and also in this one you can see every individual strand of hair or whatever yeah, <laughs> like yeah, it's yeah, a yeah. weird mix of tech stuff and and storytelling stuff. so i think the verisimilitude of the book helps it mostly mm-hmm. um though the- find, like did you were you reading it with with two sets of eyes like were you reading it with your cool like I had my gamer green, eyes glowing on gamer time. eyes yeah you had your gamer <laughs> eyes on okay I, uh, occasionally i would put them in my inventory and i would put on my artistic eyes mm-hmm. because games are not art that's a lie i'm making a joke mm-hmm. um we just talked about that i, I know do it again <laughs> well it's rel- it's honestly we could talk about it again relevant to this book but we don't need to the book makes the argument itself but uh there's a reference to metal gear solid which mm-hmm. actually uh, I don't remember if it's the Wired interview or another interview that actually talks about this. It's a really good little bit for Sadie. I'll I'll back up to their characters in just a second. But Sadie is talking to this guy Dove, and how you know she wants to be a, a game developer, and he's gonna you know help her maybe, and he's letting her see this copy of Metal Gear Solid early, mm-hmm. uh, which timeline wise is incorrect it could not she have did, happened she, she, she did cop in the wired interview she was like oh yeah this is two years early it's and fine she cops to it <laughs> in the in the notes at the back of the book which i thought was really well done um but the example of it is this like uh genre and medium uh like pushing boundary pushing game in terms of like what you can get away with as a big budget game with political stories that are like set like that reference real world events and also like you're blowing up what a stealth game can be and yet here's a shot where like a, you see a lady's panties and you can't avoid it and it's like <laughs> just what is you that what is, are you that doing is, Kojima that is peak video games to me like the yes yes <laughs> and mm-hmm. so it's this great moment for Sadie who is of the two de- developers that we hang out with is the one who is like I want to be capital A artistic a lot. Like I want to make games that are art that push the boundaries of what art mm. can be in the interactive medium. And it succeeds and fails multiple times for her. Right. But yeah. here and then a- that's what, it, that's what I mean when I say peak video games is not like, Oh yeah, I love it in a video game where no, I see exactly. uh, a 3d models bits. It's the tension <laughs> what, of it. What I mean is, yeah, if you're trying to explain this art form to somebody else, you, 
are like, yeah, this game does a lot of super cool, innovative storytelling and political commentary. And also there's some of the most embarrassing stuff yes. that I've ever had to show another human <laughs> yes. being. And, and, that's, <laughs> and that's where like the we- like the weirdness around the word gamer just like hits me. And like, I'm mm-hmm. just like, yeah, Ugh. for sure. It might mm-hmm. not hit somebody else the same way. And, and I, I know a lot of our listeners have read and liked this book and I don't know how it hit them if it yeah. clocked for them at all. But yeah, I just like dislike the the negative connotations enough to not yep. want to be associated with any of the connotations. <laughs> so our two main characters, Sam and Sadie, uh, they, Sam is similar to uh, Zevin, half Jewish, half Korean, um, living in L.A. Uh, Sadie is Jewish, living in L.A. And they meet in a hospital when they're kids, when they're maybe 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sadie's sister is undergoing treatment for cancer, and she says something kind of rude because she's the younger sister and t- tensions are high. And she, you know, gets sent out of the room and winds up in like the game room in the hospital mm-hmm. um, to pass some time. And there's a boy there, Sam, who is playing Super Mario by himself. Mm-hmm. And they start playing the game together. They have just like have a TV with a Nintendo connected to it in the hospital. Yeah. Okay. It's pretty cool. cool. All right. Just checking on, just checking for the verisimilitude. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he ultimately, you know, starts talking with her and they get along and they talk about like, you know, whether, you know, he, he's playing and then they take turns and then he's showing her how to get, you know, to the top of the flagpole on some levels that she doesn't know how to do and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And when she's leaving, the nurse is like, yo, that kid has been here for weeks and he hasn't said a word to anyone. He's having a really rough time. I can't believe he talked to you at all. Mm-hmm. Would you be interested? Like, I don't know why you're here, little girl. Could, if you're going to come back, could you come hang out with this kid again, maybe? <laughs> and I can't remember if it's Sadie's sister or her mom is like, you know, you do have to do community service for your bat mitzvah. Like, mm-hmm. you do have to put in some hours and like, I bet that would count if you wanted to come back because we're going to sure. be here for the treatments anyway. Yeah. She winds up spending 600 hours with him and they Jeez. become friends <laughs> okay. and she doesn't tell him that she's logging the hours for community service. Oh, okay. Oof. So ultimately that comes out. He gets really mad as I think you would. Yeah. Because uh, now he's this charity project to her. And Craig, I have, uh oh, I have something really funny to tell you about. Oh no! Oh no! no. But you're going to become a man at your bar mitzvah. Finally, so exciting! (laughs) Congratulations! I hate you. (laughs) Uh, And so they don't see each other for like six years. Like they, you know, break up as friends, etc. Finally, when the book starts, they are running into each other in Boston. He's at Harvard. She's at MIT. They encounter each other on a subway platform, and she gives him a floppy disk with a game on it. Uh, and it's a game called Solution that okay. is and has since there's been some drama about like about the fact that it is a riff on a game by Brenda Romero called Train. Mm-hmm. The game is Solution in the book is you are making like solving little puzzles, making widgets. And at the end of every level, you can spend some of your score to find out more about the company you're working for. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, then you get a high score. Mm-hmm. But if you do, you find out what the widgets are for. Uh-huh. They're for the Holocaust. Oh, boy. 
and she gets like one of her classmates in this game design class is like, I hate this game. I hate you. I'm going to get you in trouble with the school for making me a Nazi. Making me be the Holocaust. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Apparently, Brenda Romero designed a board game called Train that is very similar. Uh, yeah. Which is like my understanding is it's not like it, it, this game is not widely available for people to play, yeah. but it is like Does generally exist. known like it, it's sort of known in game development circles and i think uh zevin acknowledged its influence on on the book like the the brouhaha is that brenda romero is like this book is all about women not getting yeah. credited for their ideas and nowhere in the acknowledgement is like am i am i credited in any yeah. way yeah and i don't like zevin has not responded to this directly i no, think the she's only not. Yeah. response really has come from Knopf, her her publisher which these i'm, I'm gonna paraphrase the statement it's like basically who can say where fiction writers get their ideas from and also this game is legally distinct from yeah. the game train by brenda Romero. yep 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 Mm-hmm. It's a tricky thing, and it's like it was funny. I didn't know about Train when I read the book, so I'm reading this passage about this game, and I'm like, "Oh, this reminds me of all sorts of weird downloadable games I was playing in the late aughts, like mm-hmm. just random indie games that were they had a very specific thing you do." It sounds it sounds very like Papers Please. Papers Please was what I thought mm-hmm. of. Cart Life is is not quite the same level of complicity, but it really reminds me of Paper Papers Please by Lucas mm-hmm. Pope. Um, where you're you are working on a, on a border con- like control basically, yes. mm-hmm. um, you know, like a fictional Eastern European country. Um, yeah. But so yeah, that's that's the game that Sam uh, and his roommate Marks um, wind up playing, and they spend all night playing it, and they're amazed by it. And so Sam is like, "Listen, I got to get back with my best friend Sadie. I need to make a video game with her." And then like mm-hmm. kind of the rest of the book happens Mm -hmm. where and this happens a lot where like they have a falling out and then there's this routine of sam has to go to wherever sadie is and is like i am gonna knock on your door until you let me in and then we're gonna have a conversation and then we're gonna move into the next phase of our lives together and so you know it spans 20 or 30 years that way Mm -hmm. Mm um i don't know where do you where I can't go blow by blow through the book. It's too mm-hmm. long. And it's not like a long read, but it, it is too much book for me to cover in the time that we have. So like, sure. what, do, what, what is your first question? Can you just, so, I mean, I think we're going to, this, this may, this episode may well be completely unlistenable for anybody who is not <laughs> like at least sort of conversant in video sure, games. Sure. So tell me, I mean, take your gamer eyes off. Oh yeah, okay. For a second, put them in your inventory. Just sure. like, tell me what, tell me what the story that that you know the average Jimmy Fallon book club reader would would encounter and resonate with if they if they are reading this story. Yeah, two is that, relevant. Is that, is that helpful? Yeah, two relevant <laughs> texts on the syllabus are the film The Social Network, which I've referenced earlier, and the mo- the other. Oh, it's a film. Uh, that thing you do. Oh. Uh, so works. Where, yeah. It's a great movie. It's, okay. I don't, we don't we, this, Is this boring? It's just, it's what Adam Schlesinger, the, yeah, the guy from fountains of Wayne yeah. died in 2020 early in the pandemic. And yeah. I just was like thinking about it separately. And now 
Oh, this he week. And th- <laughs> he, him and things that he's been associated with just like cu- keep coming up in my life over and over and over. It's weird, man. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. But this Grief. is a this is a book about people who are important to each other. Mm-hmm. We can use the word love, but it is not romantic love. And whenever they think it might be, they are reminded in some way, shape, or form that it is not. Mm-hmm. Um who remain in each other's lives for a long period of time, weaving mm-hmm. in and out, because they work well together. They are very mm-hmm. good artistic collaborators, and that brings pain, and that brings success, that brings other people in and out of their orbit, and gives those people pain and or success. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is about them each kind of coming to their own understanding of what their relationship is, and along the way, they have made four or five games together. They have each made one or two games on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, the other big, just big old thing about this book, just a whole lot of grief. Just so much grief in people's lives for people that they've lost or trauma that they've experienced. There's some. There's a scene very late in the book when Sadie has started teaching at MIT herself and she talks about the younger generation. Um, I guess this is kind of millennial Gen Z-ish folks um, who are wearing their trauma on their sleeves. And she doesn't say that totally with judgment, but also with a kind of like, I and I don't know what they're going to do with that. Like, we didn't operate that way. So let's see where that... I, I'm going to help them be the best creatives they can, but I don't know where that's going to go kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's, I'm... I'm- Glad it's it's a little refreshing to see a reaction to that that's not like oh these snowflakes I I I came up right and anybody who comes up any other way is wrong yeah and the, I don't think that the characters at the beginning of the book would react the same way as the characters at the end it, it feels uh, it's, sure. it's a perspective that only the end of this book can earn I think but um oh where was I going with it, it for a for a book that ends with a character having that uh observation of people this book has a lot of trauma in it yeah um and so like you know sadie's home life isn't bad as she grows up her parents are i think happily married throughout her whole life i don't remember her sister does you know does not die from cancer her sister recovers um she does enter into a three-year very bad relationship with that awful designer man um there is like they enter into a BDSM relationship that she uh. sours on, and he obviously continues. He is controlling of her professionally, um, and so that's a bad scene. And then she also, it, there's other really bad stuff that happens later in the book that really, you know, she experiences front and center. Sure. Sam, as we, we meet him in the hospital, he was in a car accident. His foot is, like, almost broken beyond repair. This dogs him throughout his entire life. Ultimately, that he has to have the foot removed uh, over the course of the book and struggles with, you know, adapting to that new disability um, and like phantom pain and and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, uh, yeah, let me get to the writing in a little bit, but also his his mom has passed away. And so, like, there's just a lot of broken, wounded people. Mm hmm who are not their best they are they are rarely their best selves in this book and i have seen 
reviews or um, I very easily found a Reddit thread when I was actually just trying to find to confirm some plot details on this book of people being like, I found all the characters unlikable. Really didn't like that Sadie. And like some of them had like legitimate complaints and some of them were just like, I'm glad other people didn't like her. Like that's what Mm -hmm. I'm going to comment. I didn't ultimately find that to be my experience of the book, but I will say that my least or the parts that worked the least well for me were there's a couple scenes scattered throughout the book where after chapters of stuff happening, there's just an argument between Sam and Sadie that kind of like let's rehash the last few years of the book and yell at each other and then be a new version of okay. Mm-hmm. And the writing just doesn't feel as strong there because it's it's I don't know, it's that type of charged dialogue felt a little overly rehashy for me. Mm-hmm. And also like I don't know, there's one Okay, let me get into it. <laughs> Let's do I it. liked okay. this book. I mm-hmm. liked uh, I have a whole list of things I liked about this what's, book. What's your bit I feel you're dancing around a butt. There, and it, not not in like a, not, a, not like, in the, not in the usual way. If not know, in the usual you're way. <laughs> There's one like plot point that Sadie gets really worked up about. Um, Dove gave her a signed copy of his game Dead Sea, signed mm-hmm. CD-ROM. Mm-hmm. At some point, when they're all still back in Massachusetts, before they move their their new company after they make two video games uh, to LA. They, uh, Sam and Marks play her copy of Dead Sea, which had his signature on it. When they move to LA, which Marks has kind of engineered as like, we got to get Sam out of Massachusetts. He can literally cannot walk around this death trap of a cobblestone Boston. We uh-huh. have to go to LA where people drive, and he's going to get his surgery and he'll be with his family. And Sam, we need to get Sadie out of here because she she might go back to Dove or she might get into another bad relationship. Let's break her out of this situation and, and make a clean break. She sees the disc and then immediately just assumes, like spirals into a bad faith assumption that Sam knew about her relationship with him. Uh, when they were making the game, Sadie couldn't make a good enough engine to handle what they wanted to accomplish. And this mm-hmm. is in the mid-90s when you can't just like buy one off the shelf, like a game engine. Like today, you could go get Unreal or something like that yeah, to for, make for your the, game in. When we talk about a game engine, we just mean like basically the the thing that defines how like characters like look move and around move. And, yeah. and interact with yeah. their environments. It's just the like the the nuts and bolts of a thing that you then build your like story or your other things on top of. And a big, a big advancement in the industry in the last 20 years has been an explosion of like kind of middleware of, and there are bigger ones and smaller ones, but like, you you don't have to design all of that yourself. You can just go people pay who a license. Give, people who will give you an engine so you can do whatever you want on yeah, top of yeah. it, rather than having to come like either reinvent the wheel every time or like readapt an engine that you used for your last game every time and kind of be trapped by its yep. Yep. whatever its its inadequacies are. You know. And so the the big thing is that they have to go get they want to use Dove's Dead Sea engine, and so mm-hmm. they're they're going to go back to him. 
and this means that Sadie has to start interacting with him again, and this is the precursor to her really awful three-year relationship with him. Mm-hmm. So in her mind, she pulls the CD out of a suitcase in L.A., and she goes, listen, he played this copy of the game. He must have seen the signature, known we were in a relationship, and didn't care about me enough that he wanted the engine, even though he knew that it would send me into this terrible relationship. And I... I can. It sounds a little convoluted. <laughs> it it is convoluted, and I can grant the book some grace that it is like depicting a bad thought pattern, right? Mm-hmm. Like, but it becomes a like a her primary justification for a real cooling in her relationship with Sam, when there's all sorts of other stuff that Zevin has set up, which is that like they make this first game Ichigo, it's a huge success, but uh, the publisher really thinks Sam is a better spokesperson for it. He literally is a better spokesperson for it. He just has the better skills in front of people. So mm-hmm. he does the big press tour, which then diminishes the credit she gets for making the game. Yeah. Um, he talks her into making the sequel because it feels like a slam dunk, even though she wants to make something else. And since she's the better programmer, she does all the work uh, and she gets stuck making something she doesn't want to do. And so, and she checks this later as like gripes that she has about this situation, but it feels like, Zevin was like, well, I need like a a thing to set her off. Mm -hmm. And it just feels like, yeah, it feels very contrived. Yeah. And not quite what this person would. I don't know. Sadie does a lot of bad faith assuming about uh, Sam and he does a bad job of defending himself because he just gets cruel instead. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, I don't know, it's just emblematic for me of like. Oh, uh, you you don't need this you didn't need this in your book. You you mm-hmm. had other things that you were doing that were working. Yeah. Um it felt like to hear you talk about it. I, I don't know if you you agree with me or don't, but like yeah, yeah. it does feel like some editor read a draft and said this needs like you need more conflict in this spot or something. Like it, it sounds like a cleaner it sounds like conflict it may have or something. Been, yeah. Yeah. It may, it may have been sort of inserted later to give the story more of a shape. I don't know. I don't know. I can't, I, I don't know if it's, it's useful to speculate on that, but it does sound a little, there, there's yeah. also another like trauma of, uh, Sadie's that gets brought up all, really late in the book. Like she, you know, she had an abortion and it was very traumatic experience for her. It is, for a book that has really good foreshadowing of some bad things that happen or bad things that have happened to people, this one comes out of left field. Mm-hmm. And that isn't to diminish how that experience might feel, right? If it feels like it's coming out of left field for people, right? Mm-hmm. But Zevin does a much better job with uh, not talking about Sam's mom really ever until the exact moment in the story where you're like, wow, what did, why isn't his mom around? And then you get <laughs> amazing chapters filling in her backstory and leading up to the tragic car crash. And it's like one of the more memorable sequences in the book to me, this woman, Anna Lee, and what she did to leave New York City with her son as a single parent, and she's trying to make it as a performer out in L.A., and just really moving stuff. And then the other really good foreshadowing is another structural thing this book does is it'll give you the scenes in like quote unquote real time, right? Like mm-hmm. in the in the present for whatever that is worth. And then it'll like 
And then in an interview in the 10-year retrospective of this game after it was released, here's a snippet of an interview where they said yada, yada, yada. Like in an mm-hmm. interview with Kotaku or an interview with Wired or in this TED Talk or something. And it does allows her to get away with some dramatic irony. And in one instance, it allows her to say, like, to give Sam... He's talking about this game that they pulled the semi-popular part off of and spun out into its own like Stardew Valley MMO, like a feel-good MMO. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's called Maple Town, and it becomes this big success. And uh, the the way that she does it is she goes, and then in the 10-year anniversary, he gave this TED Talk uh, talking about the value of a utopia in multiplayer gaming. And it says something to the... It's something like, you know, despite the events of 2004 at the Unfair Games offices, uh, I don't believe that we are, you know, we have to succumb to our worst impulses when we are playing games or something like that. And mm-hmm. you're like, I don't know what that means, Sam. <laughs> what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, and then that spins into a really terrifying, like, active shooter situation at their office uh, that... That's the middle part of the book that feels a little bit of more of like I'm gonna have these characters and this story bump up against like the real world timeline. She's mm-hmm. not name checking like '90s stuff, like Clinton stuff ever. Yeah, mm-hmm. but like 9/11 is referenced, uh, and then the gay marriage stuff in San Francisco comes up and becomes a big plot point. That leads to them instituting you know, marriage between anyone in their MMO, in their Maple Town MMO, mm-hmm. and then that leads to a, you know, hate mail and a very, you know, disgruntled, angry person yeah, being sure. violent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she said about the whole violence thing, she because she knows that is like a whole thing about yeah. video yeah, game yeah, yeah. violence. Mm-hmm. I think this is from the, the Wired article. She says, I did feel a responsibility to have great clarity on the point of whether video games lead to violence. We know that this is just a politician's screed that is used to detract, distract from other things. I wanted to be clear on that point, but I do think I also wanted to express the ways in which I think virtual worlds, virtual spaces, have consequences in the real world. For many years, people sort of acted as if they, as once they went online, their real person stopped, and now we don't see it that way quite as much. But I think I wanted to talk about how our online lives can have actual consequences in the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she references like, Charlie Hebdo as an example of like people just being violent in response to art. And that is, yeah, not, yeah, you know. yeah. I feel like there's a moment, I mean, not a moment. There was just like a, a, a realization over the course of like the late aughts and the yeah. 2010s that like there is no such thing as like being a jerk online than being a cool dude in correct. person. Yep, correct. Um, they're related. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and this book is, I think, is about the flip side. Um, it's not just. It's not just this violent scene being like, and this is a real person. It is also uh, the whole last section of the book. After the tragedy of the active shooter situation, Sam and Sadie are trying to reconnect. Uh, Sadie has become completely withdrawn, and Sam has taken over the company. uh, And he makes this game that she then plays. It's an online, it's another iteration of kind of a, 
a Wild West online Stardew Valley thing where people are mm-hmm. just tending their farms and giving each other gifts and things like that. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, Sadie's character encounters another character. They develop a relationship. They spend a lot of time together. And she probably knew at some point that it was Sam. Yeah. And then it becomes clear I mean, I, that it I, was. I knew, yeah, I knew it was Sam like halfway through that sentence. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> um, and then like, when it what but then when it is made explicit uh then it fe- it's then it feels like the you were still like hiding from me and and being duplicitous thing that it kind of was right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um not that it wholly was but that's what was going on yeah uh and that is kind of like the the last breaking a part of them before the denouement of the book where they you know come together one more time and mm-hmm. um ends on maybe them making another game together but yeah, it's a it's a really lovely book. I think one of the things that may strike people is some of the the jumping between time stuff I think is pretty elegant. The whole active shooter sequence which is told in second person from Marx's perspective is really the, moving. The vaunted second person shooter. Well, that's the thing. I th- I did note that is like there. I've every like five years I see a forum post that's like, are there second person games? Dude, and I don't- second person shooter where you're just looking at somebody in the face the whole time. <laughs> like, uh, but it is a really it, because the whole thing with Marks and I haven't talked about him really at all. Um, but I can attempt to summarize it is that he is the best guy in the world. Like he's just a nice guy. He's a really mm-hmm. nice guy. Mm-hmm. He hasn't faced too much personal adversity and he has a lot of like his family's well off. So he kind of adopts Sam as like a brother in college for reasons that are a little cute. When you get to the end of the book, there's like a very specific cute reason as opposed to him just being a really nice guy. Sure. Um, but then it really kind of really sets marks up to maybe be like a, your tragic fave. Just <laughs> you're like he's not one of the main characters, so you kind of get to be like, I like that guy. He just kind of flits through the story, and then, oh. um, but he, uh, you know, he he is part of a a love triangle with them, even though they're never really in a will they or won't they. Mm-hmm. It's more like will Marks ever make a move on Sadie, which that does happen. And you're not unhappy for them, but you know it's going to cause problems. Yeah. Um, and he is the one who also like creates their whole successful business, where they also publish this other really successful series of like high school RPGs that are called what are they called? Counterpoint High. They were originally okay. gonna one the two developers, one of them wanted to call it Love Doppelgangers, and everyone's like, "That's <laughs> terrible. You can't yeah. call it that." No, that's not good. Um, and so he kind of like try makes... to try to imagine the number two after that title. I I can't. No, Counterpoint <laughs> High Two works. Counterpoint the... High Two, yeah, colon yeah. something something. Yes. I can um, I can see. Yeah, but in this big fight between Sadie and Sam, after Sadie and Marks have started dating, Sam is basically lays out that he thinks Marks is like a boring person when he's at his cruelest. He's like he's a boring yeah. person. He he thinks the end of the Iliad is cool. Because it's about Hector, and Hector's boring because he's Whoa. you know just a sad horseman or whatever. It's we're gonna have to we're gonna have to revisit this in, yeah, in a I, few months and I see whether we agree. Like, yeah, I think I like the end with Hector a bit. Anyway, um, it's just it's mostly Sam being cruel, but mm-hmm. 
he the the argument basically is that Marx is an NPC. Like he's not a main character. That is kind of the insult that is being levied. Sure. And so then the whole second person passage uh, that chapter is called NPC and it is like you're getting his perspective of this whole world for the first time, hmm. which has been okay. exclusively Sam and Sadie's. And she makes it even more stark by moving it into a second person. So you're really reminded of the perspective shift. It's yeah, it's very clever. Um, and I think, I don't know, this, this can maybe zoom us out into other texts as we wind down here, Andrew. I, reading a lot of the MMO stuff, I thought the Mapletown stuff that felt like a leveled up, like, I don't, there are a lot of kids games in the aughts on the internet, not Neopets, but stuff like websites that kids younger than us would spend time on. I mean, you just go to like a, some Nickelodeon or Disney portal or something and you'd spend a million hours on one of those. It feels like a better version of those married with Second Life is what uh-huh. Mapletown is. Mm-hmm. And there's some interest. I like that that is mostly presented as like a place where real world stuff collides. Mm-hmm. The game Pioneers, which is all you only hear about this game basically inside of it, which is the game that Sam builds to, to reconnect with Sadie. Mm-hmm. I just, I've read other books books where we are getting a version of the player moving through an imaginary space before and so Mm -hmm. like i can see that being a really new reading experience for someone who like didn't read ender's game or something like that you know Mm -hmm. that has that whole adventure game computer game in it um so yeah that just strikes me as like a formal thing that might stand out to someone i was like oh yeah i've read stuff like this before i like these characters really well so it's working for mm-hmm. me but it doesn't sure. it doesn't feel like as fresh to me personally yeah um i don't know how was i really don't remember how any of the game stuff was handled in ready it's player a, it's one it's actually really it sounds really different from ready player one because she and i think again in that wired interview which at this point we have to link because we've mentioned it like six times <laughs> um she talks a little bit about like movie adaptations of games and how they she yeah. never really thinks that they're successful because they can't evoke the feeling of playing a game. Correct. It sounds like this book, when it's talking about what it's like to play a game, is at least invested in recreating what that experience feels like. Tiny where little... ready where where Ready Player One is trying to say, What if you were Mario and you got to kick everyone's butt? What would that feel like? It's not it's not asking you to imagine what it would be like to play mario like to to play the game mario as as a person yeah but what it would be like to to be him and then to have everybody looking at you and like talking about how awesome you are at being mario that's a great good i'm glad you said that, mario do you, 15 do, times. do you understand no, that I know, distinction? I, I know exactly okay, what right. you mean mm-hmm. in the beginning of the book when they're playing mario in the in the hospital and sam teaches sadie how to get the jump to the top of the flagpole at the end of the level. Mm-hmm. The way that it is written is something like Sadie slash Mario like landed at the top of the flagpole. Mm-hmm. And so it is trying, and I honestly thought there would be more writing explicitly like this, and I guess I don't miss that there wasn't, but it clued me into that Zevin gets exactly what you're talking about, Andrew, which is like Mario did the thing, but actually you did the thing. Yeah. And like mm-hmm. that's part of the feeling when you're playing a game and it feels good or when it feels bad, it's like, you I mean, Henry, Henry it. and I, Henry and I play super Mario wonder together. I'm, I'm pretty sure he understands that we're not watching a TV show, but I'm 
Like, yeah. not a hundred percent. No, yeah. Like, I think some some of the ways that he talks about it are like like we're watching a thing. Do you will you watch Mario with me? Yes, <laughs> yes. Because it's on a screen, and you know, and he doesn't play a game like play it on his own or anything. He just wants to watch his favorite character Toadette go and do cool things <laughs> on the TV. But yeah, th- this book I think is very intelligently written about the overlaps between the player, the characters in a game, and the designers who made those characters. A big thing with the game they make, Ichigo, they initially, it's you know, it's all referencing Hokusai art, um, and Sam is, you know, he's half Korean, so like they make this Asian-looking character, and then all of the publishers start to assume that it, it is about Sam, and they take this gender neutral character and make it a boy so that it'll sell more. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that kind of authorship personhood stuff is wrapped up in how they talk about design in this book. So like sure. Zevin gets it. And it just that one scene frustrated me. <laughs> and I hope people know that most of the scenes really worked for me. Uh, and if you can't tell like that just game references are falling out of my head because <laughs> of like what the book unlocked. Um, yeah, it's really, it's a cool book. I, me referencing, uh, you, that thing you do is not meant to be uh, reductive. It is meant to be a compliment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I think it, I have not seen a story about games do this type of like, what does it mean to make it? What does it mean to make it with someone? What does it mean to lose control of the thing you made? What happens when you just want to get back to basics with someone? Like sure. all that kind of stuff that we have seen other stories in other media already do. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. I think that's tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. It's a yeah, reference. I'm glad you, glad you yeah. liked it. I yeah. hope that we find out more about these characters in the sequel tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> You'd like the part where they explain that it's a reference to the Shakespeare play, the Scottish play, mm-hmm. and Marx makes an impassioned argument for calling their studio tomorrow because he has a really uh, inverse reading of that poem. Sure. <laughs> that, that stands up than what it means in the play mm-hmm. <laughs> about grief. And he's like, no, mm-hmm. it means you have infinite chances like games. It's like, okay, Marx. If, if, if this were a real story about gaming, they would start their story called Tomorrow and it would end with them getting like bought by EA in 2007 or something. Like, Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Nope. Nope. It's nope. pretty successful. Okay. So that's the book. Uh, if you read it and you liked it, great job. If you haven't read it yet, <laughs> maybe you'll like it. Bad job. If you read it and you didn't like it, if you haven't read it and you didn't about. like it, that's the worst you could possibly do. I think. <sighs> Listen, you could always read it again. Just play the play the book again. Mm-hmm. Reload from your previous save. Mm-hmm. Maybe you'll get a different result. You save scumming. That's that's all a bookmark is. Is just save scumming. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Send us an email over to pod at gmail.com. <laughs> Would love to hear what you think about this book. Uh, find us on social media at Overdue Pod or just search Overdue Pod and whatever social media you're using. Uh, 
Nick Larangis composed our theme music. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is our internet website. We have the books that we have read and are going to read. Craig has a, I think, finalized December schedule for us to, to read here in a minute. Uh, we also have patreon.com slash overduepod. Our Patreon project support us financially, help send our kids to school, pay for new equipment, pay for books, all the things that keep the show running and us living. Uh, these are these are things that you do when you support us on Patreon, and we are so grateful for all the people who do it. Uh, you also get access to bonus episodes early. You get access to our current long reads project early. Currently, that's Emily Wilson's translation of the Iliad. We just mentioned that. Yeah. Just drop in, just drop in a promo for the long read project. Yep. Thanks. Stealthily in Seven. the middle of a regular yep. episode. <laughs> Uh, and access to our Discord community where people are are developing their own book awards and writing novels and doing all kinds of talking stuff. Talking about games, you know? Yeah, talking about games. Yeah. We were talking we're about sharing, pinball sharing, games the other day. Sharing Garfield images. There's a, there's a big all Garfield things, subculture in our Discord. All, there's a lot of Garf. Yeah, that subculture is the right way to describe it. <laughs> Craig, what are we reading in the month of December? Um, next up, you're reading Titus Grown by Marvin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. Uh, we're going to celebrate the holidays. Uh, yes. We're going to celebrate the holidays with Her Night with Santa by Adriana Herrera. <laughs> uh, and then we're going to do a bonus stream probably in between uh, Christmas and the New Year. So keep an eye out for that. Join us on Patreon uh, to join that stream or get that recording early. Mm-hmm. We'll make an announcement about that soon. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And until we play with you next time, like in a video game kind of way, try to be happy. player one excuse me did you just whisper a burp no i burped away from the microphone okay it sounded like (laughs) it sounds to me it sounded like you went like on on purpose (laughs) no it was one of those burps where i didn't know what it was going to sound like when it came out i just Mm. i just hit the burp button and Mm. something happened Traffic Department 2192. <laughs>